that's the amount of talent in our church. I, I just, you know, as a pastor, I've been here for about two years, and um, I was just shocked. I always knew you all were talented, but I've never seen it in on full display, you know? There are people that can cook. There are people that can do magic. There are people that can play. Like, there was, there was, like, a thief. There was all sorts of things. And I was sitting there thinking to myself, like, wow, these people are incredibly talented. And, um, and I praise the Lord for that. And here's why I say that. Not necessarily to, to tell you how talented our congregation is, even though that's the case. I tell you that to say God shows his grace to us in so many different ways. You know, we can, we can hear about God's grace from his word and amen to that. But when you see it on display up here through so many people and to see what the Lord is doing through so many people, just by giving them gifts. The Bible says that that's what he does. He gives us gifts and we use those gifts to show him glory. And that's a remarkable reality. So if you have a gift or if you have a talent, don't be afraid to use it for the Lord because that's why he gave it to you. It's an aspect of his glory. He could have made us all just boring. But he doesn't do that. He gives us these wonderful gifts in all sorts of things, artistry, um, cooking, whatever it is. And that is meant to reflect his glory and his grace. And I praise the Lord for that. All right, turn your Bible to Colossians uh, chapter 1. We're going to start a series in the book of Colossians. It's, it's, it became one of my favorite books to just read through a few months ago when a group of us did a Bible study um, on the book of Colossians. And I was sitting there thinking, like, this is so delicious. You know, like every every passage, I felt like just sitting there and just eating it up and meditating on it. And I said, you know what, I, got, I have to teach this because, you know, if I'm finding it good, I'm sure other people are going to find it good as well. And the Lord really blessed um, the group of us that, were, that went through the book of Colossians. And even beyond that, one of, the power be- one of the powers behind the book of Colossians is that it helps us understand how we are transformed by the gospel. And that's one of our major themes for this year. Gospel transformation. What does that look like? And the, the book of Colossians does that. I'm going to read a few verses. Um, I'm going to take us down to verse number 14. So hear now the word of the Lord. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, and Timothy, our brother, to the saints and faithful brothers in Christ at Colossae, grace to you and peace from God our Father. We always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you, since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love that you have for all the saints because of the hope laid up for you in heaven. Of this you have heard before in the word of truth, the gospel, which has come to you, as indeed in the whole world it is bearing fruit and increasing, as it also does among you, since the day you heard it and understood the grace of God in truth, just as you learned it from Epaphras, our beloved fellow servant. He is a faithful minister of Christ on your behalf, And has made known to us your love in the spirit. And so from the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will and all spiritual wisdom and understanding. So as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every.
every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God, being strengthened with all power according to his glorious might for all endurance and patience with joy, giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us into his kingdom of his beloved son, in whom we have redemption and the forgiveness of sins. For all flesh is as grass, and the glory of man as the flower of grass. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of the Lord shall endure forever. And this is the word that will be taught unto you. Amen and amen. Well, let's go to our Lord in prayer. Father, indeed, we thank you today. We have gathered here to hear from you. And my prayer is that indeed we do, that we hear clearly from you. Only your words matter. Only your words can give life. They're life-giving words. So I pray that more than anything else, these people would hear your voice and less of mine, that they will see your heart for them and your love for them, and then may that transform them in their inner being. Bless us now, your people, in Jesus' name. Amen and amen. Well, at the heart of Christianity, at the heart of the gospel, is a doctrine known as the preeminence of Christ. And what do we mean when we say the preeminence of Christ? It means simply this, that Christ surpasses all things. That there is nothing in the world greater and grander than Jesus Christ, and therefore nothing in this world requires or demands your attention like Christ. That the whole point of Christianity, I often tell people, is in the name, Christ. He's at the core of it, and therefore, as the ancient theologians would often say, he is our greatest treasure. One of the most remarkable statements in all of the Bible, Jesus quoted, and he said this, If any man will come after me, let him deny himself, pick up his cross, and follow after me. Pause for a moment and think about how all-encompassing that uh, statement by Jesus is. Think about that for a moment. He said that if any man would come after me, let him just deny himself, pick up his cross, and follow after me. Jesus is saying that I am preeminent. There is nothing greater or grander than me, not even yourself. I am supreme. I am high above everything. Now, pause for a moment and think about if anyone else made that statement. Let's say for a second I go to Scott Kennedy. I said, Scott, let's go, let's go hunting. And Scott looks at me and says, Dennis, if any man will come after me hunting, let him deny himself, pick up his weapon, and follow after me. Right? Imagine if Scott Kennedy said that. Now, Scott Kennedy is stately in the way he looks. Right? But he's not... He is not, what, preeminent. I would look at Scott Kennedy and say, what the heck are you talking about? I just want to go hunting with you. You're not preeminent. I don't have to deny myself in order to go hunting with you. I just want to go hunting with you. But Jesus says, you, if you are to follow him, he must be preeminent. He cannot be an addition to your life. 
It cannot be something that you just do on Sundays. He has to have the primary place in your life and in your existence. That is all-encompassing, and that is a powerful reality. He will have no other and no replacement. He is absolutely 100% preeminent. He's a life-dominating reality. Now, why do I mention that? Because that's the point of Colossians. In fact, look with me in Colossians chapter 15, uh, just, just 15 alone. We don't have to read, uh, you know, 15 down to 20 makes this point. But just look at verse number 15 alone. In, in talking about Christ, Paul says, he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. Now, when he says he's the firstborn of all creation, he's not saying that Christ was the first person created. That's not what it means. What firstborn of creation means is a way of saying Christ is preeminent. It's hearkening back to the Old Testament reality of the firstborn that has all the rights and privileges of the community. What he is saying is that Christ is preeminent in our lives. Why is that important? Because he's our greatest treasure. And let me say this, if Christ is your greatest treasure, then we find all treasures through him. One, one um, theologian in the Puritans, uh, he said this. He said, unsought, unsought, thou hast given me the greatest gift. And here he's talking about Christ. Thou hast given me the greatest gift, the person of thy son. And in him, thou will give me all I need. Hear me today. That's the secret of Christianity. You want to know what Christianity is about? You want to know what, what is at the core of Christianity? The, at the core of Christianity is this. Make Christ your treasure, and through him you will have all other treasures. Why is that a blessing to you and I? For this one reason. Think about how our lives, the people that you know outside of your church, maybe, maybe unsaved relatives, Maybe people that you know that don't hold Christ as their treasure. Think about their lives and think about how miserable their lives are because they go about chasing after every pleasure other than Christ. I don't know if you know this or not, but we have an anxiety problem in our society. Now, I know there are different causes of anxiety, so please don't hear me like just making a broad sweep here. I want to be so careful. Anxiety is a huge issue, but so many people that I meet that are specifically unbelievers, they're anxious about the things of this world. Why? Because there's so much treasure that they want, and they keep going after it. And what they miss is that in Christ, God makes the gospel so simple. Whatever treasure you desire, find it through Christ. Jesus says it like this in Matthew 6 and 33. Jesus says, seek ye first the kingdom of God and all his righteousness, and how is it finished? And all of these things will be added unto who? You. Do you see the priority there? The priority of the gospel is that we make Christ our treasure. We make Christ the supreme good. We make Christ the pearl of great price. And through that reality, 
We get all the treasures that our hearts desire. But be careful. It's the treasure that you need, not always the treasure that you want and desire. Right? That's a powerful reality. And that's what the book of Colossians is about, that when we find Christ, when we hold high Christ high as our ultimate treasure, it is through him we find all the treasures that our hearts need and nothing else. Now, so for the rest of our time in Colossians, right, so that's the introduction, the rest of our time in Colossians, we're going to see what those treasures are. And I hope you're excited because there's so many treasures in this book. Right. And we're not going to have time to go through all of them. So I'm going to be incredibly selective. But there's so much treasure in this book. Like when you go through the book of Colossians, and by the way, that's your homework. You have to read through the book of Colossians every week. Otherwise, you can't come back. Okay, I'm kidding about that. You can come back. I know sometimes we're busy um, and we can't just read. But but if you can, if you can read through the entire book of Colossians. It is a powerful, wonderful book, and it's like treasure hunting because it's everywhere. All right, let me be quiet because I only have a little bit of time left. I want to introduce you to the first treasure, and the first treasure is found in verse number two, that we are called saints. That we are called saints, saints of the living God. Now, I, I, I want to show us two things. First of all, what does it mean to be a saint? And second of all, why does it matter? Why does it matter? What does it mean to be a saint, and why does it matter? First of all, what does it mean to be a saint? It, when you read an epistle, you'll notice that there are all sorts of names given to people, right? And you'll see it here. But each one of those names are given for a reason. So look at verse number one, Colossians chapter one. First of all, we see Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus. What does it mean to be apostle? Why does Paul call himself, uh, call himself an apostle? Paul calls himself an apostle to communicate the divine obligation he has to proclaim the gospel. He's a gospel proclaimer. That's what it means to be an apostle. Secondly, notice in the text, he calls Timothy, our brother, and then he calls the people at Colossae, their faithful brothers. Now, why would he do that? He does that to communicate the special bond all of them have in Jesus Christ. That's why he does that. Now, then he calls them saints. And what's, what's the purpose of being called saints? What, why does Paul call us saints? Do you, do you re- By the way, let me pause for a moment. Do you realize that you're a saint? Is that ever, has that reality ever hit you? Ross is looking like at me like, uh, really, Pastor Dennis? Yes, yes, you're a saint. Have you ever paused and thought about that? That's a powerful reality that you and I are saints. Now, why does Paul call us saints? Why does Paul call us a saint? The reason why Paul calls us a saint is because he wants you to know that when you become a believer, you get a radically new identity in Christ. That you no longer identify solely as a sinner. But your new identity now is that you are in Christ and therefore you are looked at as a holy one, as a righteous one. You have a new status and with that new status comes all the rights and privileges of the kingdom of heaven. That's a powerful reality. 
I'll never, I'll never forget. So most, some of, most of you know um, I was born in the Bahamas, and I became an American citizen. And that process took about three or four years. You know, it doesn't have to. It just took a little while. I wanted to hold on to my Bahamian citizenship a little bit longer. But I finally relented, willingly, not by force, right? And as I was going through the process, it was interesting to me that they all, that during the process, like I want to become an American citizen, they always kind of treated me like a foreigner. You know, like, like even through the process, they'll say, well, Mr. Lewis, you know, it's a privilege to be a, an American citizen, and, and so you have to go through this process. And so I went on what seemed to be like 50 interviews. And I remember the interview before I actually got sworn in as an American, the lady sat down and she was going through my application and she was like, oh, it looks like you've been busy the last three years. You have three kids. And I was like, what does that mean? You know, like, what does that have to do with anything? Um, we did have three kids at that point. And then she said, now, Mr. Lewis, when you become an American, here are all the things you get to do. And she started listing them out. She's like, you know, you get to vote. You get to buy property. You get government scholarship. You get all this. And she started enumerating it. And I started getting excited. Like, wow, all these things are mine? I could, I could actually do all of these things as an American? And then she, the last thing she told me at that point is, look, you're not, an official, you, you're not officially an American yet until they swear you in. So I said, cool. Two months later, I'm in, um, I'm in the, a courtroom federal courtroom and they're swearing us all in and and at, at a particular point in time they said the judge said you all are now american citizens and that was incredible now here's two things i want to say about that first of all is this when he proclaimed that we were an american citizen oddly i felt no change in that I didn't. It wasn't like my DNA changed. It wasn't like all of a sudden I stopped being um, a Bahamian. Like I still had my accent a little bit. And if you, you know, if you still take me back to the Bahamas, the accent just snaps back in place, right? But nothing changed at that point, at least not with me physically. But something else changed. The moment, the moment he said, you are an American citizen, I got all the rights and privileges of an American. See, you have to understand, you, you might be sitting there thinking, wait a minute, I'm called, I'm called a saint, but I don't feel any different. That's because when you are called a saint, that's a statement of declaration. Whether you feel differently about that or not, it is saying something specific about your position in Christ that right now you have all the rights and privileges of the kingdom of heaven. You can go to God as your father. You receive grace and mercy and peace from him. All of that is at your disposal if you but take it. That's the power behind being a saint. You don't have to wallow in sin. You don't have to wallow in regret. You don't have to wallow in anything. Because now you've been given a new status, a glorious new status in the kingdom of heaven. Now, some of you are looking at me, and I know what you're thinking, because I read minds. I do not read minds. But I do, know, I do know a little something about the human mind. Here's what I know. 
some of you are sitting now and you're thinking to yourself, Pastor Dennis, that's great that I'm a saint. It's great that I have an inheritance in Christ. It's great. Yeah, everything you're saying, amen, 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 amen. But here's the problem, Pastor Dennis. Even though you're telling me I'm a saint, I am fully aware that I'm a sinner. See, Pastor Dennis, what you don't know about me is that I go home and I watch pornography. And what you don't know about me is that I still sleep around. And what you don't know about me is that I still lie. And what you don't know about me is that I'm still very bitter and angry person. And so even though you're telling me that I'm a saint, in my own heart, I feel like a sinner. So, hey, pastor, why don't you tell me why that's a reality in my life? That's a deep and profound question. Um, but the question actually has been answered before. It's been asked before, and it's been answered before. Um, Martin Luther, an Augustinian monk who started the Reformation, he addressed that contradiction. Why, why is it? Why is it that when we read our Bibles, we read over and over again that we're saints? Paul uses that word 40 times to describe the people of God. How is that the case even though we act and live sinfully? How is that even possible? Is that a contradiction? And you know what? Uh, Martin Luther said, actually, no. No, it's not a contradiction. And here's what he says. He came up with this formulation. And it's brilliant. He said, and this is the formulation, simul justus et, et peccator. And here's what that means. He said that at the same time, we as God's people, at the same time, we are both righteous and sinners. At the same time, Martin Luther says. Uh, but, but because he doesn't want to violate the law of non-contradiction, because there is a sense in which we can't be both sinner and saint at the same time. There's a sense in which those two things cannot exist in the same place, in the same relationship. So he said, you have to understand that within you, there are two natures warring with each other. And, and that statement is meant for us to look at it from different perspectives. At the same time, you are a sinner and a saint. How is this possible? Here is how Martin Luther says it's possible. He says, first of all, you are a saint. And you are a saint because... You are a saint because you have been declared righteous by God. That's a declaration of who you are. That's what it means to be saved. That's what it means to be justified. You have been made righteous by God. That's how you are a saint. That's how you are just. That's why he can look at you. Paul can look at you and say, you are a saint. There's no other reason why Paul would look at you like that. In fact, just read the book of Corinthians. The book of Corinthians are filled with liars and, and deceivers and adulterers. And people who talk bad about one another. I would have excommunicated three-quarters of that church if I was the pastor. 
Man, they were awful people, and yet Paul says, you were saved. How is that possible? It can't be anything by what they have done. It has to be because of what God has declared them to be. Righteous. But Luther said at the same time, we're sinners. We're sinners. And the reason why we're sinners is because we have an inability. We are unable to do what is right. And so both of those realities are, 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 are just like that is who we are. At the same time, sinner and saint. Now let me make this practical for us. Like you might say, okay, that's, that's a great theological reality, Pastor. How do you make that practical? Here's how I make it practical. I want to use a little example. When our children were younger, I mean young, like, you know, they were like two, two and a half. They could barely talk, diaper booty, the whole nine yards, right? Um, they, you know, they would go around the house, and, and they, would, they would try to get something off a table, you know? Like, but it was just kind of out of their reach or on top of something, and it was kind of out of their reach, and they would always try to get it, and they would look around at me like, oh, oh, oh. And they want me to go and get it. So I'd go and get it for them. It's like, oh, that's cute, you know. Can I get it for themselves? Or, or like somebody gives them a candy and, and they, like, you know, they have the candy and they can't quite get it open. So they're, oh, oh, you know, and they give it to me and it's like, oh, oh, meaning open it, open it. So I'd, you know, I'd take it, I'd open it, and I'd, oh, whatever. And, you know, just walk off. Forget you. You don't need candy at this point in your life, right? Too much sugar, you know. But, but you know that stage in a child's life, you have parents, have you been around young children? You know that stage in their life where they're helpless. And because they recognize they're helpless, they, they look back to you. They constantly look to you to help them. Look, that's the gospel. That's what Martin Luther is saying. That's what it means to be a sinner and a saint at the same time. A sinner is someone who is acutely aware that when they walk around in life, there's so many things that they cannot do. They cannot live life on their own. That they're always like, uh, uh. That every aspect of life is just out of the reach. Happiness is out of, the, or out of reach. Contentment is out of reach. Everything is just out of reach. And you realize you need help. That's a sinner. So what is a saint? A saint is someone who does this. God, uh, uh. In other words, help me. I, I know, look. No one has any illusions that they're not a sinner. I've like I've, I've not met anyone who doesn't understand that they are a sinner. You may have, I've never. Everybody to some degree or another realize their inability. Everyone to some degree or another understands that they're a sinner. Everyone is on the same level playing field. But the difference is that a saint knows where to turn for help. Because I cannot do it by myself. Beloved, that's a saint. That's what it means to be a saint. Now, why does it matter? Why does being a saint matter? I want to give you three quick, quick reasons, and I'll be done. The first is this. Being a saint matters because it gives us supreme assurance. Supreme assurance of who we are in Christ. 
we are saved. That gives us remarkable and supreme assurance. And you know what? When you have assurance, that changes the way you live. It changes everything. Assurance changes everything. If you ever take a kid to a playground, and especially if there's a lot of people on the playground, you know one of the things you notice is that as the children play, and they could be doing all sorts of stuff, right? They could be up on the monkey bars. They could be running around. They could be playing and doing all this stuff. And every so often they'll turn around, and what do they do? They look for you. They want to know where you are. Why do you think they do that? They want to be assured of your presence. And so they keep playing. And what happens when they don't see you? Like you move or you go somewhere else. They freak out. Why? Because they don't have assurance that you're there anymore. And so their safety is in danger. And they get paranoid. They want to see where you are. And the moment they see where you are, what happens? They get traumatized. You know, and this isn't just on the playground. This is everywhere. Look at the metrics for business. Businesses tell you. If you own a business or if you're a boss, if you want productivity to increase, if you want your business environment to be the most amazing place, give assurance and security to the place where you work. Uh, Parents or guardians, if you want your home to be transformed, a place of beauty and rest and flourishing, what do you do? Offer assurance. If you're in a dating relationship or if you're just in in a friendship group, Give assurance to that group and watch how that group flourishes. That's the reality of the gospel. We get remarkable assurance through Jesus Christ, through being called clean. Remarkable assurance. The second thing is this. is that through being called saints, you and I as God's people have a remarkable charge. Notice in this text, Paul says in verse number two, to the saints and faithful brothers in Christ at Colossae. In Christ at Colossae. Now, I almost missed this, um, but in my study, D.K. Beale, he's a, he's a New Testament scholar. He said about that phrasing. He, here's what he said about that phrasing. I just stopped and, and pondered this. He said that phrasing in Christ at Colossae is meant to communicate that the Christian spiritual location in Christ should affect how they live in their physical location. Do you hear what Beale says? That you, as a believer, if you are in Christ, if Christ dominates your life and thinking, wherever you are is where the gospel must be lived out. You know, I hear people all the time say, you know what? I want to change the world. I want to change my community through the gospel. Great aspiration. You know, the the best place for you to start is with yourself. Start with you. Deal with your unforgiving spirit. Deal deal with your bitterness. Deal with your unloving unloving heart. Deal with the lack of generosity in yourself. You know, stop trying to change the world when you need to be changed. Stop trying to change other communities when your community goes unchanged. See, this is a radical call. When he calls you saints, this is a radical call for you and a charge to you that you need to change and become more in line with the gospel. And the last thing is this, third thing, is 
I think is a sign of a, remar- a remarkable sign of God's grace. Notice uh, with me at the end of verse number two. He says, to the saints and faithful brothers in Christ at Colossae, grace to you and peace from God our Father. This radical expression of grace. You know, I, I finally sort of come to the place in my life where I realize I understand why we, we live at times, not all of us, some of us live such a graceless existence. Why, why we struggle to show grace, we struggle to forgive, we struggle to just, to just be gracious to people in general, to, to try and extend the grace that's been given. And the reason why is because we don't understand grace. We don't. You know, we treat grace like Ebenezer Scrooge treats money. Oh, you know, kind of pays us to give out a little bit of it. You know, it's like, it's like the grace is mine. Now, we want grace, obviously, right? We want to be forgiven. We want to be recipients of God's grace, but we, we're stingy with it. We're, we're super stingy with it. But notice what Paul says here, grace to you and peace from God our Father. In other words, grace is abundant. He's just giving it out. Why? Because he realizes that he's been given it. Pressed down, beyond measure, above all. Beloved, when you realize and understand what you've been given in the gospel, how grace has been lavished on you, then you know what you do? You lavish it on others. And let me tell you, you have been the recipient of remarkable grace as a saint. Therefore, you treat others the same way as saints of the living God. That's the big takeaway, by the way. As you've been made a saint and been the recipient of God's grace, it is now your task and your duty to give that to others. Father, we thank you so much for the power of the gospel and and the treasures that we find in your word. Oh, Lord Jesus, thank you. Thank you that in this book and in every book, we see Christ as our treasure. And not only that, we see all the treasures he gives us. Bless this people now, Lord. They're your people. I know that they love you. I know that they want to serve you. Help them to make sure that Christ is their treasure. And may they live and walk and move in that regard. In Jesus' name, amen.